If you have your Bibles, turn them with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand. Make sure that you get one. Deuteronomy 6, and we're going to start at verse 4. Read on down through verse 9. Moses writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your word would go forth with power this morning and that it would cut to our hearts. Father, I pray against any thought or attitude or spirit in this room that would seek to exalt itself against Jesus Christ and above Jesus Christ. Cast down those things, Lord, and let you be supreme, Father, and let us acknowledge you as supreme. You already are supreme. The battle for recognizing that and acknowledging that is in our hearts. So, Father, I pray that you would help us with that, Lord. Help our pastor as he preaches the word. Give him strength this morning, Lord. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're like most people, perhaps some of the most precious possessions that you have in your home are things that have been passed down to you. Maybe heirlooms, special gifts that a relative gave you, maybe your parents or someone else, but things that have been given to you that have been passed down. Maybe they've been passed down for generation after generation after generation, and they're precious. Even if they don't have a whole lot of monetary value, they have a ton of sentimental value. Their value resides in the fact that there's something that it's something that's been passed on as a heritage i have something here in my hand here it's real small very hard to see it's a little bitty little bitty bitty earring now this little earring uh belongs to my daughter olivia she's back there shaking her head like where do you get those i asked mommy first so i borrowed them this little earring here belongs to olivia and this was given to her by her mom Heather, and I believe, I should have made sure I had my story right before I got up here, I believe these were given to you by your dad on what birthday? On your 16th birthday. So these have been passed on from Olivia's granddad to Olivia's mom to Olivia, and they're very, very important to her. Um, It's very, very important to Heather. It's important to her dad. I think they were bought in Africa. Is that right? So these are African earrings. Well, It wasn't too long ago that um, Olivia, after a church service on a Sunday morning, noticed that one of these African earrings was missing, and she was very sad about that, and Heather was sad about it, and I was sad about it, 
And we searched and searched. I searched this church like crazy. I walked the halls of the church praying to find an earring. <laughs> and we couldn't find it. We couldn't find it. And we were sad. And we were sad because it was special. Okay? I don't know how much these little earrings are worth, but they're very, very special to my daughter because of who they came from, because of the heritage that's been passed down to her, this, this little heirloom, if you will, that's been passed on to my daughter. When I think about something being passed on and our sadness when we lose that item, and I hope everybody has been in prayer for the families uh, in Mississippi, and Arkansas, Alabama, and Georgia, and Tennessee, who, um, who lost everything um, over the course of this past week, and some lost family members. And when you think about when you lose something and, and the sadness that's involved there, something that should grieve our heart much more, much more greatly than, than the loss of, a, of an earring or the loss of even our home, is the loss of a spiritual heritage. Something that should grieve us much more is when we don't see the generations to come worshiping God. When you look at the statistics today and you see this graduation rate, as one author put it, from church, and that is that over two-thirds of church-going children, once they graduate from high school, will never come back to church. And you see this loss of a spiritual heritage. It isn't being passed on by and large in America today. And that should grieve us. And as parents, it should grieve us if our children do not carry on the spiritual heritage that have been entrusted to us. There's no task more important than the transmission of our spiritual truths to the generation to come. And this task falls upon the shoulders of parents, but not solely upon the shoulders of parents, because it also falls upon the community of faith, the church, the Jesus tribe. We are continuing with our series, The Jesus Tribe, and today we come to this very, very, very important passage in Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it's the next logical step as we think about the Jesus tribe. We've, we've seen that from the very beginning, God created people to be, to be a people of community, to be a relational people. This is a series about relationships because God himself is a relational being. He lives in perfect community within the Godhead. So we, as imagers of God, were created to be in community. Yet we see, and so we see at the very beginning that, that marriage was established. That it was not good that man be alone because man fully images God when he is in community with other human beings. But then we see that sin enters the picture and Satan aims straight at community. He aims straight at relationships. He wants to destroy man's relationship with God, and he wants to destroy man's relationship with each other. Because Satan hates community because Satan hates the image of God. And so we see that community was corrupted. And as we continue to go through this series, we've seen examples of man trying to do community on his own terms at the Tower of Babel, and how community done with man-centered focus, community done uh, out of sinful motivations is a false type of community. And we see that God has this great design and it's first revealed in Genesis 3.15 that, that one would come, there would be two tribes, there would be the seed of the woman, the, the Jesus tribe, and there would be the seed of the serpent, uh, the line of, 
of, of Cain, if you will. And there would be these two tribes that would flow throughout history. And from the line, the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. He would crush the father of the serpent tribe once and for all. And so we see the Jesus tribe continues. There's this group of people who put their hope and their faith in God that he would send this one, this deliverer who would, who would crush the head of the serpent. And there's those who are rebelling against God continually on the side of the seed of the serpent. And the, the sad thing is we're all born into the tribe of the serpent. And only by the grace of God, by putting our hope and our faith in Christ alone, are we brought out of the seed of the serpent and the tribe of the serpent and born again into the Jesus tribe. And we saw that God gave promises. He, everything kind of narrows down to one family, the family of Abraham, as the, as the biblical story continues. And, and God makes promises to the seed of Abraham. And we, we read that and we saw that and we saw that there is a temporal, physical fulfillment of the promises to Abraham that are seen in the Old Testament through the nation of Israel. But that wasn't the full, the complete fulfillment of the promises. That would come through another seed of Abraham, which would be Jesus Christ, who was ethnically related to Abraham. And he would be the one, the one offspring that, that the Bible speaks of. And then we see this great truth that all who put their faith in Christ also are part of the family of Abraham and our true Israel and our true Jews. And so we see this great story and how, how God narrows it down to one family and then opens it up to all of humanity, to all who would call upon the name of the Lord to be part of the Jesus tribe, to all who believed in him. He gave them the right to become children of God. And so as we think about how God is functioning in history, we look at this physical temporal fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises, and we look back at Israel, and we see a foretaste, a, a foreshadowing of the realities that would come in Christ. And so we can look back at Israel, and we can look at things like Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we can draw principles from how God wants community to function. That's why we looked at the Ten Commandments a few weeks ago. We looked at how, why God saves the people. How does he envision community functioning? What's the purpose of what he's doing? And in today, I want us to see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that one of the ways God works within the Jesus tribe is he works with families. And he creates little tribes within the bigger tribe of the Jesus tribe. And so we're going to talk today about this very, very important passage. This passage you're undoubtedly familiar with. You've probably heard it preached several times. I know in a church like ours, which... Uh, with the way a lot of you guys are, are bent with your thinking and your theology, uh, you're going to be drawn to passages like this. And you've probably read books about this text. And so I just want us to think on this text today. I want us to come at it and, and really examine what it's teaching us. This text is central to Jewish thinking and theology. It was very much foundational to the Israelite community. It bore great meaning to the people of Israel, and it should bear great meaning to us, the true Israel, the Jesus tribe. There's no other book in all the Bible that focuses on family and instruction to children and youth as much as the book of Deuteronomy. And there's no single passage more important to that focus than the one we're reading today. All the themes of Deuteronomy radiate from this passage. To the Jew, to the Orthodox Jew, this is considered to be the most important text in all of Scripture. 
The Orthodox Jew would, would view this as his confession of faith, and, and this would be the first text that any Jewish boy would be required to memorize. This text would be recited twice a day without fail. And it's interesting that, that Moses decides to connect, connect the core biblical truth of God's monotheistic nature that we read here in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He, he, Moses decides to connect that directly to the home and relationships within the home. The home, the family, by its very connection to these verses, is of paramount importance to the community of God's people, both then in physical Israel and, but, and today in the church, spiritual Israel. So I want us to think about this passage. I'm going to read it again here in a second. Now this passage to the Jew, to the Orthodox Jew, is known as the Shema. And uh, basically what that means, is that's the very first word in the text. It's the word hear or listen. The Shema. So really it starts like this. Shema Yisrael. Listen, hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is a beautiful text. This is a tremendous passage of Scripture. It's like a diamond. It's beautiful and it's multifaceted. You can come at it from a bunch of different directions. Today I have four statements about this passage that, that I want you to complete in your notes there. I want to focus on our spiritual heritage. The passing on of our spiritual heritage from one generation to the next generation. The passing on of the truths of God. The wonders of His name and the depths of of his character. And the first thing I want us to see in this passage, and we'll see if my clicker's working this week, is number one, God's self-revelation is the content of our spiritual heritage. God's self-revelation is the content of our spiritual heritage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In this one simple sentence, God tells us a lot about himself. God's proclamation to, the, to, the, to his children, to his people, is that he is unique. He is holy. He is without equal. He's all in all. There's none like him. He alone is God. This text could also be translated, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Now, there are two things being brought out by the word that Moses chose to use when he talks about the Lord being one. There's a oneness in unity. This, this word, when Moses talks about the Lord is one, it's the same word used in Genesis 2.24 to refer to male and female becoming one in marriage. And so the concept here is this idea of unity. There's an internal unity within God himself. And so we have a hint again in these texts, just like we do in, in earlier in Genesis, of the triune nature of God. That within the Godhead himself, he is unique and he is unified. He is without any need of anyone else. So we have this teaching of God's oneness and unity. But also, this, this word also means that he's one in the sense that he's exclusive. There's exclusivity here as well as unity. 
God's people were to be of singular focus. The Jesus tribe is, is distinct from the serpent tribe in that the serpent tribe has laid before the eyes of men many idols, idols of their own making. But the one true God, Yahweh, is one. And there was to be no other. This is God. This is the one who has revealed himself. He has revealed himself to us. He is not a God of our making. He is not a God that conforms to our logic or to our systems of thought. Now, I can't remember who you I was talking to over the past couple of weeks, but we were talking about how sometimes when, when someone has a specific disagreement, perhaps in doctrine, people will often say, well, that's not the God I worship. And when you think about that, you say, well, that's not the God I worship. If, if you really believe that, maybe you're discussing God's sovereignty, and you think about God's sovereignty, and you say, well, I just can't, that doesn't fit into my logical framework, and therefore that's not the God I worship. There's only one God. There aren't several gods we can worship. Now, I know that we'll always have some theological differences, but the fact of the matter is there is only one true God to worship. And our desire should be to go to the text and take the text for what it says, not try to cram it into our logical boxes and say, I believe what it says right here. God has revealed himself to be like this, and therefore I believe that God. This is what God has said about himself. The God we often want to worship is the God made in our image, a God who is tame, a God that has been made a little bit more palatable to our modern taste buds, a God that will share his fame with other objects. But we don't need a close replica of the one true God. We need the one true God. The life of God's community, of his people, of his church, relies upon a proper understanding of who God is based upon his self-revelation. The lifeblood of the church and the lifeblood of your family is found in how you view God. Are you making a God after your own image to fit your lifestyle, to fit your family, to fit the way we want to do church, to fit what we think about reaching the lost or what we think about this? Or are we going to the Scriptures and saying, we want the God who has revealed himself clearly in the Scriptures, and that's what we want, nothing else. We proclaim his sovereignty, his rule, his goodness, his mercy, his justice, his severity, his might, his gentleness, his character, and all his holy attributes based not upon what we think about God, but upon what he has revealed about himself. So the Self-revelation of God is the content of our spiritual heritage. What you're passing on to your kids, what you're passing on to the next generation has to be God above everything else. If you're passing on good morality, good ethics, good behavior, which I hope you are, but you're not passing on God, then it's insufficient. Any religion in the world can pass on good morality, good ethics, good behavior. But the one true God wants us to be passing on to the next generation deep teachings about who he is. Moses knows what Israel's about to face. He's kind of giving a summary here. Deuteronomy is a kind of a rereading of the law and, 
This is before they head out. This is after they've already been in the wilderness 40 years. He knows he's about to leave his post. It's going to be taken over by Joshua. And he's giving his people this, this charge as they, they head into the land of Canaan. And he knows what they're about to face. They're about to face a people that have plenty of gods that they've made. There are so many gods to worship. There are so many altars to bow down to. There are so many high places to hone their spirituality. And so too today, the families, we are living in a land of Canaan of sorts. With so many altars to bow down to. With so many false gods to worship. With so many ways to be spiritual. And many of our altars are good things that we've turned into idols and gods. The only way forward is for the community of faith to believe, to have faith in, to know who God is. One God who gave us one word that points to one mediator who is the one way that the one people of God can serve the one God for all eternity. One. Hear, O Israel. Shema Yisrael, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. So the content of our spiritual heritage and the community of faith like I said, it can't just be good family values. I think one of the dangers as we marry the church and politics these days is that we get so focused on family values, we want to push our family values, which in and of itself is not wrong, but family values in and of themselves are not what we're trying to pass on. We're trying to pass on the knowledge of God who shapes all of our values. I would rather parents focus on doctrine about God's nature than trying to convince their children that abortion's wrong. I believe abortion's wrong, and I believe abortion is wrong because I know who God is. Now, that's not to say that our behavior and our morals and our ethics are unimportant, they are. And they will be changed as we know him more. Colossians 1.9, it says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking for that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to, now here's our ethics, here's the way we live, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That text has knowledge at the beginning and knowledge of God at the end. So the logical consequence of our knowledge of the nature of God, of the one true God, should be a complete love for God. Number two, our love for God is the confirmation that our spiritual heritage is real. Verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Our love of God is the confirmation, it's the evidence, it's the proof that our spiritual heritage is real, that we've actually put faith in that one true God. Up until the book of Deuteronomy, with a few exceptions, there's an exception within the Ten Commandments, but up until the book of Deuteronomy, with a few exceptions, most of the mention about God's people has been in the sense that they must obey Him but Deuteronomy goes out of its way. Moses goes out of his way to connect obedience with love. God's expectation isn't that we just obey him. God's expectation, his command, is that we love him. So Deuteronomy takes 
the fruit of obedience, or Deuteronomy shows us that the fruit of divine love, sorry, is obedience. And the two are inseparable. One can only obey God rightly when he has loved God deeply. God's people are to be united to him in love, meaning that God desires more than religious exercises. God desires more than just religious practices. God desires relationships with us. God's people are called to love and empowered to love because God loved us first. Here we are to love God with the totality of our being. It says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Your heart are your, your emotions and your, your intellect. The soul is your spiritual essence, your spirituality. The might is your physical being, your strength. In, in, in uh, Mark chapter 12, when Jesus quotes this passage, he adds the word mind. Hellenistic listeners would have divided the heart and the mind. For the Jews, the heart and the mind were one thing. So Jesus, as he's talking to more of a, a culture that's more been influenced by Hellenism, he, he splits that apart and talks about your heart and your mind. But the point Jesus is making and the point Moses is making is the exact same thing, is that we are to love God with absolutely every bit of who we are, all of our being, the fullness of our being. We leave nothing out. Our love for God should infect every aspect of our being, what we think, what we, what we love, what we adore, what we do, how we care for our bodies, heart, mind, soul, strength. We must meditate upon how we are loving God in these areas of our lives. Something I tried to do a couple of years ago and really haven't followed through very well with it was, was to measure out my reading. I try to read books as much as I can and measure out my reading that I'd be reading a book about maybe my, my physical health and at the same time be reading a book about that would, that would stimulate me intellectually and challenge my mind and read a book that's, that would just stir up my emotions and stir up my heart and, and also uh, read a book that would really create spiritual disciplines in me and, and, and stir me to be a, a, a more of a spiritual person. And so because I want to not just feed certain parts of me, I want to feed all of me with a love for God. I think we're all bent in different ways and some of us are more the intellectual type and some of us are more the emotional type and so it's easier for us to love God in those areas or to stray from God in those areas but God calls for the totality of our being to belong to him in love God is not supposed to just be another compartment of our lives he's supposed to transform every compartment of our lives now you recognize these verses because Jesus as I already mentioned in Mark chapter 12 and also in other passages refers to these words as the first and greatest commandment. The first and greatest commandment for us parents is for us to love God truly and fully. As mentioned in my point earlier, the total true love for God is the confirmation that the message, the spiritual heritage is being taught is the confirmation that it is true. Our affections reveal our convictions. I mean, this happens in all of life. If you hear a song you really like, what do you do? You, first of all, you react to it, and then you tell other people about it. You see a movie that just really moved you, you tell others, hey, take your family to see this movie, it's amazing. You read a book that just really meant a lot to you, you tell people, hey, I want to go read this book. Our affections, what we love, what we're excited about, reveals our convictions. 
The most influential teachings we'll pass on to our kids are our attitudes and our practices, not our speeches and our rules. Josh McDowell has the great formula that he talks about in a couple of his books. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. I don't know if you've heard that or not. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. And so you can fill your home full of rules to try to point them to God, but if you don't have an affection and a love and a passion for God, then those rules mean absolutely nothing. They mean absolutely nothing. If I have to choose between, if someone comes to me, and if you're like me, I'm a little bit more of a disorganized person, so rules and structures are something I'm, I'm, I, have, I struggle with. And so I have to really work hard to create rules and structures in my home and in my own life. And, you know, um, I have to actually look at the to-do list instead of just making it, you know. So structure is difficult in, in, with me just because of who I am. But if you have to choose between tremendous, spectacular structure in your home or passion that lacks a little bit of structure, I'll take the passion. Because you can have these rules and these structures over here, but your lack of passion about God will teach your children more than anything else. It'll teach your children more than anything else you do. Conversely, your passion for God, your love for God, will teach them that this God is real. That this one true God is someone to be believed in. It'll be the confirmation of your spiritual heritage. Our kids will know we love God by the way we live and by the way we love. If we're only passionate about God when we're in prayer over trouble that hits our life, well, then our children will learn a spiritual heritage that makes God out to be a big problem fixer in the sky. If we're only passionate about God when things are going good, then we make God out to be a God who has no control over the storms of our lives. Our passion for God is to be all the time, completely, all of who we are, 24-7, 365 days a year. Our passion for God is to be there. I worry about my own failures in this area. When my children see me not passionate about God for whatever reason. And I'm leaving holes in their faith when we should be passionate and driven to love God all the time. My love for God will be revealed in the way I treat my wife, the way I handle my money, the way I navigate challenges, the way I spend my time, the way I treat others, the way I treat those who mistreat me. Your children and my children have a front row seat watching every move we make. Are we giving them the real thing or just giving them a show? Your children have a front row seat to your life. You are the theater for them right now. And are we giving them the real thing? Even if it's not perfect, even if I'm messing up, or are we giving them a show? They'll see through it. They'll see through it especially when they become adults. According to Jesus, who quoted the Shema partially when he said the greatest commandment, he also said the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so I think it's very interesting if you connect what Jesus said to the actual Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Who can be our closest neighbor outside of our own home? You can't treat your neighbor as yourself if you don't start treating your home the way God wants you to treat your home. So my third point is this. The home is the center of the transference of the spiritual heritage. The home is the center of 
this transference of a spiritual heritage. Verse 6, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. These words, these words, he says, all of these words, what words? What he's just been talking about, that the Lord our God is one and that you are to love the, God, love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. These truths, these commandments, these words are to be on your heart. Spiritual education in the home begins with spiritual commitment from the parents. We cannot expect spiritual truths to settle into the hearts of our children if we've not been diligent to put them into our own hearts. Our commitment to pass on a spiritual heritage starts with our own commitment to learn. Our own commitment to a personal worship of the Lord. Our own commitment to personal devotions and quiet time. Our own commitment to reading the scriptures. Our own commitment to growing ourselves spiritually. Our own commitment to discipleship. To not only being discipled, but discipling others. Our own commitment to being held accountable. Our commitment to pass on a spiritual heritage begins with this commitment to ourselves be transformed by the Word of God. We cannot ask our children to become something we're not. I would dare say, simply because I know, I know men. And a lot of the men who are very concerned about the spiritual heritage of their children very concerned and want to see their children grab these biblical truths and believe in them. A lot of men, at the same time, cannot carve out time to read the Bible and cannot carve out time to spend in prayer. I know it's a reality. And so we can't even begin to hope that our children are going to grasp anything if we don't do what the Bible says. We've got to get it in the right order. You shall put these words and press these words upon your own heart first. Then you can focus on the children. I had a coach when I was in college, when I was in college playing soccer. I had a coach who, well, he just wasn't very good at soccer, which sounds really weird. Okay, but he was our soccer coach. And he had played some when he was a kid in Africa, and somehow he had gotten the job, and I think it's because Hardin-Simmons was going through a transition at that time where they were putting all their focus on starting a football team, and all the other sports just kind of got left in the, in the wake. And so they hired this guy, and you know, he, was a, he was a fairly nice guy, but honestly, he wasn't a good coach. He didn't know anything about tactics. He didn't know anything about formations. He didn't know anything about what drills to do. He would just go out there and say, hey, y'all go play. And it was, it was horrible. And we were really, really bad. We were. Okay? For four years, we were really bad. And I was the goalkeeper, which means I was on the receiving end of that badness. After I graduated, the year after I graduated, um, that coach left. I don't know if he got fired or he left. But one of my friends who uh, I knew from college, Corey, became the coach at Hardin-Simmons. And Corey was passionate about soccer. He loved the sport. He knew about the sport. He watched the sport. He studied the sport. And almost instantaneously, with almost all the same players, unfortunately, I was gone that year. I'd already played all four years. But almost 
instantaneously the next year, this team won many games. They had a winning record for the first time in a long time. And they were winning games. And not only that, the next year they even won even more games. And now Corey's no longer the coach there. I know they've had at least one, maybe two other coaches since then. But they now have a heritage of, of, of really good soccer teams. They're considered one of the best teams in the region. And what did it t- take? It took a coach who actually believed in what he was trying to do, who actually knew what he was doing, who actually loved the sport. That's what it needed. And that's what families need. Fathers, primarily, you are the coaches of your family. And you cannot try to pass on to your children, and I am as guilty as this as anybody else in this room, you cannot pass on to your children what's not first in your own heart. A spiritually dynamic home begins with dad primarily, but also mom, and their own spiritual development. Fathers can only teach when fathers are learning. It's a never-ending job. Now let's look now at how the home should work when you have, first of all, the parents growing in their spiritual heritage. Let's look now at how the home should work. Verse 7, you shall teach them, what's them, we're going back to these things, these teachings. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is the summary of all the law. So we, these things, these laws, these truths, okay, you shall teach them diligently to your children. So teaching diligently implies a formal discipleship that needs to happen in the home. Now, I already told you guys, I struggle with structure. This is the area that I struggle with the most, is coming up with formal structures in the home to pass on spiritual truths, spiritual, having discipleship in the home. And, but the Bible says we should teach these things diligently. So there's a formal aspect. And then there's an informal aspect as well, because it says, then you shall talk of them. In other words, there should be dialogue in the home about godly things. We should be talking about God. God should be the center of our conversations. So we should teach them diligently and we should talk of them. When? When do we teach and when do we talk about these things? Well, Moses gives us four examples. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Okay, when you, when you sit in the house, it may be a reference to meals. It's a great time when the family sits together. Even secular psychologists have now come to the conclusion that Moses taught us thousands of years ago that families that actually eat dinner together are much healthier than families that don't. And so sit at your house. When you walk by the, by the way, when you're traveling from one place to the next, let your, let your speech, let what you're talking about be seasoned by God's Word. And when you lie down, that would imply bedtime. And when you rise up in the morning. Now, is Moses just saying, okay, only these four times, okay, there's only four of them. Get these four down and you've got it, buddy. No. No. What Moses is trying to communicate, just like when it said heart, soul, might, he's communicating an image of totality. Look at the words. When you sit and when you walk. When you lie down and when you rise up. They're opposites. And what he's saying is in everything you do, in every bit of your life, the totality of your day needs to be focused on God. You need to be talking about God. He should, he should infiltrate everything you're doing in your life. 
Again, God cannot be compartmentalized. He must permeate everything. He cannot be confined to Sundays. It doesn't have to always be formal. Informally, we should be thinking about God in our conversations, in what entertainment we choose, in our recreation, in our rest, in our travels, in our routines, you name it. This is so practical for us today. And what God is establishing here, and I've read this somewhere, is a God-centered rhythm of family life. A God-centered rhythm. God, His nature, His glory, His accomplishments must be the drumbeat of your home. And, and your rhythm may look different than another family's rhythm. Okay? If, if you are a type A personality, strict dictator, your rhythm's going to be a marching band. If you're more like me, okay, and you kind of go with the flow a lot of times, your rhythm may be a little bit more like, I don't know, Francis, all right? I'm, just, I'm not saying anything about Francis' drum playing. I'm just trying to think of another example. But there should be this rhythm. It should be this drumbeat in your home. Life is about God. Life is about God. Life is about God. Noah, he's learning to play drums. As a matter of fact, he's, he's becoming a very good drummer. And uh, he, he's learning to play the drums, but he's learned the drums so much that he, sits, he goes around the house all day going, you know, he'll be sitting at the table, you know, I'll be sitting watching TV. And I'm like, okay, Noah, stop, stop. All right, please. The drum beats have got to stop. But he's an excellent drummer. But when it comes to God infecting our home, let the drum beat go all the time. It should be God, 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 God. Let's talk about, think about God in our home. Now be careful. I want to read you a passage because when we read texts like this, our tendency is to, okay, drumbeat, especially type A personalities, drumbeat, do this, do this, do this, do this, and we can really easily slip into legalism. And so we've got to be careful. We're aiming for a worldview, a lifestyle, not rules and legalism. Let me read for you Vody. Most of you here know Vody Bachum and... Um, and since you do, I'm going to read from his um, book here, which if you don't have this book, if you've never read this book, I highly, highly encourage it, Family Driven Faith. Um, I have some differences with Vody in a few areas, but certainly not in most, and certainly not in what he says right here. Sometimes we fall into the trap of substituting legalism for a biblical worldview. For example, we set hard and fast rules for what our children wear, watch, see, and hear, but never take time to develop the kind of thinking that the world that would guide them in such decisions. Don't get me wrong. I believe wholeheartedly that parents must diligently protect their children from ungodly influences. I also believe that limits must be set and rules must be established. I am simply suggesting that limits and rules are insufficient in and of themselves. If all I give my children is limits and rules, they will do what I tell them as long as I'm around. But once they leave my home, they will live in accordance with their worldview, not my rules. Thus, I must spend as much time shaping and molding their thinking as I do making rules. Legalism simply sets up external, extra-biblical standards that take the place of biblical thinking. 
it's much more tough to win your children's heart than it is to just give them rules. It's really easy to do rules. And it's really easy for Christian parents for us to hide behind the rules. Because we can, if we enforce the rules, modify behavior to a certain extent. But our goal is to change their worldview. They're not born with a Christian worldview. They're born with a selfish, humanistic worldview. They're born thinking that they are the center of the universe. Every crying baby proves that. They're born thinking... I am the center of the universe, and we have to teach them that God is the center of the universe. We have to mold their worldview, and that is very, very hard. That's not easy, but it's very rewarding when they leave the home. We are not fighting to affect our kids' behavior. We're fighting to win their hearts. So teach them. Talk to them. But the text also calls on us to do a couple other things. Bind them as signs on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and write them on the doorpost of your house. What does this mean? Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes? Well, just as Moses is using language earlier, as he talks about heart, soul, might, and he talks about sit, stand, he's not giving us some sort of legalistic rule here. Now, there are Orthodox Jews that have taken this literally. Have you ever seen the, the walking around with the, the box on their head, the phylactery? They've actually taken this text and said, put the Word of God in that box and tied it to their forehead or to their hands. And you'll see it even today. You see, you see pictures of, of Orthodox Jews who do this today. I don't believe that's what Moses was aiming for. Because I can set this Bible on my child's head for 24 hours straight and nothing's going to change. I can smack them upside the head with the Bible and nothing's going to change. What's Moses getting at here? He's talking in figurative language, meaning that the word is always to be available, on our hands, ready to go. It's always to be on our minds, continually. We are to meditate upon it. And we're also to write them on the doorpost of our house. Again, figurative language. Now, there's no problem writing scripture in your house. Well, I don't know. You may not want your little four-year-old writing Scripture on the walls in your house. But uh, frame Scripture. We, we've got Scripture on some of our walls and different things. There's no problem with that. But again, I think that the figurative nature of what Moses is saying here is that the God's Word is to be present. Spiritual heritage should be something people see when they come in your house. It should be evident when people come and when they go. It should be the first thing people think about when they walk into your home. This is a family that loves God. And it should be evidenced by the way your home is run, by the way you live. The home, the family is the center, the hub of spiritual education. It was in Israel and it is in the church today. The home, not the church, is the primary place where children will learn to love God. And the parents, not the pastors, are the primary spiritual educators of the children while they are in the home. I've read this statistic before, but a child is ten times more likely to believe and embrace something that their parent tells them than a stranger or someone else. So in other words, what I say to your kids, I'll have to say it ten times before it gets in here, and you only have to say it once. I believe that. But I also believe that the home does not exist in a vacuum, and it's not an end in and of itself. Remember, we are part of a larger family. 
We are families within a family. We are tribes within the Jesus tribe. So my fourth point and final point is this. The community of faith is the context in which the home passes on the spiritual heritage. We must remember that in Deuteronomy here, who is Moses addressing? He is addressing the congregation. He's addressing the community as a whole. Thus, the spiritual education of the next generation was to take place in the home, but it was the responsibility of the entire community. Let's look at how it begins. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O church. Moses is calling the entire nation to be responsible for what he's about to say. And then the other clue in this text is the very last verse. Let's look at how it starts, but then let's look at how it ends. Verse 9. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house. And what's the last part? And on your gates. Moses is not referring here to gates of a house. Houses didn't have gates. Cities had gates. Communities had gates. The gates of the community, if you know the scripture, is the place where the men would gather, the elders of the town would gather to conduct business, to judge cases, law cases. It was the place where people uh, met together, where they, where commerce was carried out. The gates of the city. The spiritual education of the family is not only to be on the doorpost of the house, it's supposed to be part of the community of faith. We all bear the responsibility for every child in this church to, for the spiritual, spiritual truths and spiritual heritage to be passed on to them. It's like two pedals of a bike. I, I saw this illustration just this morning. Okay, have you ever tried to pedal a bike with one pedal? Now, I don't know if, it's ever, if you ever had a pedal that's broken or something like that, but, but it's very difficult. And you try to push it down as fast as you can so that it comes back up on the other side. So you can then push it down again, but it's very difficult. The bike was created with two pedals weighing on either side of the bike to give you the force to move that bike forward. And that's the image I want us to have of the church and the family. Families cannot do this by themselves. They must have a community of faith. They must have a church. Children need the church and parents need the church. Again, I was just reading this morning a, a term that this guy had about two different types of errors in the church. One are the, run, are the dump and run parents. The dump and run parents are the parents who, who leave their children with the church and say, you educate them, you take care of it, and I'm, I'm running. And they come and they pick them up. It's the dump and run idea of church. I think that's what most of us probably are used to in America today because we have all these programs that we make it easy for parents to dump and run. But then there's another error. There's the cut and run. And those are the parents who have seen the danger of the dump and run, and now they cut ties with the church and run and say, uh-uh, it's just about me and my family. We may show up to church, but it's just me and my family. And those are two errors in the church. Because the church and the family should work in conjunction. They should champion one another. Parents should champion the church, and the church should champion families. I believe Acts 2 uh, 47, 40, where we're, Acts 2, 42 through 47, where we read about the early church, I think even this gives us that, that image. You, you, you know the passage. We taught it just a, well, I guess our Acts series has been going for a couple of years now. So it may have been over a year ago that we read this. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and 
and the prayers. And awe came upon every, on every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Mikasa and Sukasa, right? All things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day after day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think we see this image in Acts of the church and the home working together. This is one thing. We're on one mission here. The church is God's primary vessel to bring the redemptive message of Jesus Christ into the world. The church is his bride, not the family. But the family is also highly important. And it's within the context of the family that our spiritual heritage is passed on. The church... The church is needed to surround kids with other godly adults. The church is needed to model faith to children who don't have godly parents. The church is needed to reinforce a biblical worldview that's being taught in the home. The church is important to give children an opportunity to exercise their giftedness in the church. The church is important because spiritual growth happens when we are connected with a local church, when we are part of a body. The church is important because it equips, encourages, and empowers and enriches parents to do their task. The church is important because it's a place where the generations can converge. My children, their grandparents are here today. And their other set of grandparents just left today. And so I'm glad that their grandparents are here today. But most of the weeks, their grandparents aren't here. And I want them to see other godly adults, older adults who they can look up to and admire and who can invest in their life as well. There should be spiritual grandparents and spiritual parents all in this room. Spiritual aunts and uncles. One of the things I love about the mission field, when when you're a missionary kid, you call all other missionaries aunts and uncles because it's one family. And, And there's almost this need to do that because you're in a foreign land, you're an alien, and you need this group of of other Christians, of these other missionaries, and those are your aunts and your uncles, and, and your aunts have the right to, to speak into your life truth and even correct you, and, and there was just this wonderful sense of family. And we've lost that in the church in America, but we are aliens. We are foreigners in this world, and the church must be a family. The families need the church, and the church needs families. It works hand in hand. I like what Reggie Joyner the way he illustrates this, he says we need to be aiming for the color orange. The family is yellow, the church is red, and we have this tendency to go one or the other. Let the church handle all my spiritual discipleship of my children. No, I'm going to handle all the spiritual discipleship of my children. And I think we should be finding that orange, where red and yellow converge. And that's what we've been aiming for at Harbin's from the get-go Sometimes we fail, sometimes we succeed, but aiming for that, what I believe is a biblical balance, a biblical balance. Let me just confess that I preach to myself first. I think it was Spurgeon, I'm not sure, who said that the pastor must first preach to himself before he stands up in the pulpit and preaches to others. Because when I read Deuteronomy 6, 
it makes me weep because I fail so easily. And I haven't done the formal teaching to the degree that I need to. I've failed. But my hope isn't in my strength and in me. My hope is in Jesus Christ alone. And so I press on with faith in Jesus Christ that, that He, His grace is sufficient to make up for my weaknesses. And therefore I continue to push on and trust that, that God's going to equip me and strengthen me to be a better dad and to be a better husband. And I confess my failures. And I have faith in God. This earring that Olivia lost, well, that's not the end of the story. Some of y'all know the story. So I thought, we thought it was here. She lost it here. Or she thought she lost it here. She discovered it was missing here, I should say. Weeks later? Two weeks? Two months. Two months later, my daughter is at her pool where she practices swimming, Swim Atlanta in Lawrenceville on Sugarloaf. And uh, Heather can tell the story better than me. I'm just trying to recall what they told me. And she's standing there getting dressed after, after swimming. And she notices under the mat, and they have these big, thick blue mats that you stand on there so you won't slip when you go into the bath changing room. Underneath the mat, in the concrete, where there's a crack, way deep down in that crack, she sees this little glimmer of gold. And she thinks it's her earring. And so she can't get it. She goes and calls Heather to come get it. Heather can't even see it. She's like, what are you talking about? Tries to get it, knocks it down farther. And Olivia's convinced, no, that's my earring, that's my earring, that's my earring. Of course, Heather's thinking, okay, let's go get something to get it out. I'm sure she's worrying. She's going to be so disappointed when we pull out this, I don't know, almond Hershey Kiss wrapper or whatever it is stuck down there. And they get a ruler or something, scissors. They reach down that crack and they pull it out. And wouldn't you know it, it was the other earring. It was right there. Two months later, we prayed about that earring too. God does answer prayers, even things we consider menial, unimportant. He does. And there was that earring. So if you're like me this morning, and you're sitting here, and you are... So frustrated with yourself because you feel like you've let that heritage just fall down into the cracks of life. You've allowed distractions, you've allowed uh, frustrations, you've allowed difficulties to put your family second in so many areas. And if you're like me, there's always hope. And you pray to God today. You come to this altar today and you pray to God. You ask him for forgiveness. You ask him for strength, and he will give it. It may not come the day that you pray for it. It may come two months down the road. It may come two years down the road. But you pray, and you keep working, and you keep meditating, and you keep loving the Lord your God with all your heart. And like I said, that's the most important thing. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you really stink at creating rules in your home, I would rather you have that than be a major rule keeper who has no passion for God. Trust in God. Trust in His grace. The God who finds the lost is the same God who can help you find the right path again to be the type of dad and mom you need to be. 
As we close, I hold in my hand right here my genealogy. Uh, it says, a kin older than kings. And according to this, my relatives first came over to America in 1747. Okay? And so you can trace them, the Doyles. Okay? It needs to be updated a little bit. But this is, uh, this is my, my genealogy. But you know what? As much as this is precious to me, I belong to a different family that will last throughout all eternity that's even more precious to me. I'm part of the Jesus tribe. I'm part of a kin greater than kings. I'm part of a kin that is the king of kings. And if you're here this morning, all this stuff about spiritual heritage, honestly, it's the cart way before the horse if you haven't first dealt with Jesus and come to him and repented of your sin and trusted him as your Lord and your Savior. And by that, by your confession and your trusting in Jesus Christ, you have been grafted into a new family. You've become a child of God. If that hasn't happened first, that's where your spiritual heritage begins. That's the starting point. And then you can begin to pass it on to the next generation. So let's pray right now. Let's close our eyes and let's pray and let's just respond this morning. As your eyes are closed and heads are bowed, I, I want everybody to respond today. Um, and I'm just going to mention it while, you're, while your heads are bowed and eyes are closed. But up here on the stage, there are some books right beside the, the um, offering basket and the prayer basket. There are some books and these are, these are devotional books for parents to lead their children through that takes children through the Bible. And um, we're providing this to you. The church is giving this to families. And so what I want you to do this morning is to come up here. I would like for the dads, if the dads are here, to come up here and take one of these books. That's your response. But take it only if you're going to use it. Only if you're going to use it. If you're not going to use it, leave it right there. But come take one of these books and use it in your home. Let it be a tool to help you take your children through the Bible, verse by verse. Ten minutes a day. Let it help you if you're like me and you struggle with structure. If you're not a dad, if there's no dad in the home, then mom, come up here and get it. If you're a grandparent and you want this to be implemented with your grandchildren, come get it. Come get a book. Let's all respond to the Lord however he might be leading us this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing in my heart. And, Lord, it's painful and difficult. I feel like I've been going through the discipline that you speak of in Hebrews that is not pleasant. But it's very good. It's very good. You have my good in mind as I struggle through some of these things that Deuteronomy speaks of in my own home. You have my good in mind. So, God, help me. Help every parent in this room. Help every grandparent. Help every aunt and uncle. Help every person who may not feel like they know any children but that are part of this church. Help us all to embrace the task to pass on a spiritual heritage to the generations to come. And God, forgive us of our sins. We've all sinned. We've all fallen way short. Not all of us have sinned in the same ways. 
But every single dad in this room, every single mom, has fallen way short of the Deuteronomy 6 standard. So God, we ask for your forgiveness. And we ask for your grace and your mercy to give us strength to go on, to keep on, to be to be the baton carriers of a spiritual heritage. And as we have these children in our home during this short period of exchange, may the exchange be done well. And may you get all the glory. So God, we thank you. We pray now as we sing this song to you that you'd stir our hearts to respond. Lord, I pray that dads in this room would come and take one of these books and to commit to, 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 to teach their children diligently in the home with this resource. I pray for moms who, who feel this great burden to teach their children, but there's no dad doing it. There's no dad available. God, I pray that the church would surround them with love and, and that, Lord, the men in this church would be like fathers to that child. I pray for the grandparents in this room who feel like it's too late. My children are out of the home. There's nothing else I can do. Lord, that they would see that they still, as parents, have the opportunity to invest in their children, and they still must be praying for their children, and they have the opportunity to invest in grandchildren, and they have the opportunity to invest in the children in the community of faith. Lord, that we would all see that this responsibility belongs to each and every one of us, and that we would respond accordingly during this time of singing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand, if you would, as Mark leads us in a song. Sing this together. Sing this with Pam. You're not a God created by human hands. You are not a God created by human hands. You are not a God dependent on any mortal man. You are not a God in need of anything we can give you are god and that's just the way it is you are god alone from before time began you are on your throne you are god alone and right now in the good times you are on your throne. You are God alone. You're the only God whose power none can contend. You're the only God whose name and praise will never end. You're the only God who's worthy. Of everything we can give, you are God, just the way it is. You are God alone, and before time begins, you are on your throne. You are God alone, and right now. You are on your throne. 
you're unstoppable, that's what you are. You're unchangeable, you're unshakable, unstoppable, that's what you are. You are God alone from before time begins. You are on your throne. You are God alone. Right now, in the good times and bad, you are on your throne. You are God Father, I pray that you would really help us to respond to the challenges that have been laid before us. God, I pray for all those men that just came up responding to the challenge that's been laid before them. God, I pray for those who did not come forward but who felt burdened and challenged by the word that was preached and by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray for the the fathers in this room you would help us to step up and be the kind of men that we are supposed to be. If we are not investing properly in our wives and in our children spiritually, I pray that you would help us to to do that. If we are spending too much time doing other things, whether it's work, golf, hobbies, help us as men to knock it off and cut it out and put first things first which is you and that first mission field that you've given us, which is our family. We repent of our sins, of neglecting that, Lord. Help us to do better. Father, I pray for the families that don't have a a Christian dad in the home that is guiding and influencing and teaching, Lord. I pray for, for the moms and grandparents, Lord, that you would give them the strength and the resources that they need, that you would make up for the lack that is in that home. You can do that, Father. We pray for that, God. I pray for this church, Lord, that we would really be a church where the generations converge, where where even those that don't biologically have children that they can be fathers and mothers to the little ones in this congregation. And that those of us who do have children in our own home, God, that we wouldn't just limit ourselves to that, but recognize that there are other children here as well, Father, that you want us to love and to pray for and to, and to impact and influence, God. Help us with that. Help us to be De- not just Deuteronomy 6 homes, but a Deuteronomy 6 kind of church, God. Help us to do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated just for a moment. And uh, there are still some, some books left, so if you didn't get one and you want one, please don't be shy. Do that. I've been using, the, using that book in my own home with my own kids, and uh, it's, been, it's been great. It's been awesome. Really, heads of households here, there is, there's really no excuse for, for you to not be leading your family in, in the Word of God. There are plenty of tools and resources, and this, this is just one. And there are, there are many others out there, and if you need help with that, 
uh, talk to Steve, talk to me. We can pray together about that, and, and we'll do what we can to, to, to help encourage you in the right direction and pray for us because we need help in that area too. Uh, real quick, I, I just uh, noticed on the back of your bulletin, it says, no rewind and explore the Bible today due to Easter. Obviously, it's not Easter anymore, uh, so we will have uh, rewind uh, Bible studies with, uh, with our younger children. And then Sorry. for... Hmm? Sorry. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> we forgive you. Uh, and for older kids and uh, for adults, explore the Bible study with me uh, in the fellowship hall. We'll be doing that in about 10 minutes and I guess rewind beginning ASAP. So that's it. God bless you. Oh, Go in peace. One second yep. real quick. Just next week is Mother's Day and we are doing baby dedications. We've got five children right now that we're going to be dedicating to the Lord next week. Um, if there's anyone else in here that's wanting to do that, have their child dedicated, I need to know today because I've got to get stuff ready for it. So uh, if there's any other children, parents that are wanting to dedicate their children to the Lord next week, uh, please let me know today. All right, that's it. We're going down. <laughs>